morning. The word of the Lord today in Titus 3, verses 1 through 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Thank you, Mike. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Twin Cities Church. It's great to see you all here. The book of Titus is what we've been going through for a few weeks here, and it develops uh, as a progression of argument. Paul is, is um, giving instructions to a coworker of his named Titus, and they had spent some time on the island of Crete preaching the gospel in all of the towns on this island and started a bunch of churches. Then Paul left and he gave instructions to Titus to bring these young churches to maturity. And so we saw that the first, the first stage in establishing a young church is establishing leadership so they, they can uh, preach and teach uh, sound doctrine and protect the church from false teaching. Last couple of weeks, we've spent time looking at what it means to organize ourselves as a community and as families, and how God has, has called us as men and women and husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and children and employees uh, to, to a work, to a calling that is specific to our, our family roles and structures, uh, but is also uh, strengthening the community as, as a whole. Uh, this week, we're going to look at the world. What has God called us to in our work in the world? And as I was preparing uh, for this week, I ran across this quote in Psychology Today. While possessing wealth and material goods doesn't lead to happiness, giving them away actually does. Generosity is strongly associated with well-being. For example, studies of people who practice volunteering have shown that they have better psychological and mental health and increased longevity. 
Another study found that when people were given a sum of money, they gained more well-being if they spent it on other people or gave it away, rather than spending it on themselves. This sense of well-being is more than just feeling good about ourselves. It comes from a powerful sense of connection to others. And in excuse me, an emphatic, excuse me, an empathic and compassionate transcendence of separateness and of our own self-centeredness. And he continues, so if you really want to enhance your well-being, and as long as your basic material needs are satisfied, don't try to accumulate money in your bank account, and don't treat yourself to material goods you don't really need. Be more generous and altruistic. Increase the amount of money you give to people in need. Give more of your time to volunteering or spend more time helping other people or behaving more kindly to everyone around you. Ignore the happiness means consumption messages we're bombarded with by the media. A lifestyle of generosity and underconsumption may not suit the needs of economists and politicians but it will certainly make us happier. So this is from Steve Taylor, PhD from England, quoted in Psychology Today. And I thought, when I was reading it, I thought it sounded a lot like the instruction that Paul is going to give Titus to instruct the churches in. And when we start, so we've looked at, at the instructions that Paul has given to Titus. Okay, establish the church, appoint leaders so that they can preach and teach and build up the church and protect it <clears throat> excuse me, from false teaching. And then we create, so again, it's, it's focused on the community. It's focused on the community, strengthening the community. But then we look at the importance of our families and us as individuals, as members of families and the role we play in strengthening our families and strengthening, again, the church community. And it's all been focused on making sure that we are strong in the gospel of Jesus Christ and strong in the community dynamics that God has called us to so that we can in, in, be steadfast and endure and flourish and prosper as God's people. But now he's going to move us into mission. And we've got to start thinking about what God has called us to. And again, it's very similar to what this instruction here is from psychology today, which we would not consider to be, uh, the, obviously, it's not God's word. We wouldn't necessarily even consider it consistent all the time with biblical instruction and the teachings of Jesus Christ. But I, I thought it was interesting that it, it picked up on what I think our culture would believe to be true. Hey, if you want to get a good life, um, don't try to live for yourself, live for others. I, th I think that that would generally be affirmed in our culture. But if you look in our culture, it's not happening. We in increasingly, as a culture, are individualistic and consumed with consuming. So we all have a sense that it's true, um, but we don't do it. We don't do it. And, and why is that the case? Mike read Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and there's a, a verse in there, verse 3, that points to the reason why 
we as a people, not as the church, the church is called this way, and we are struggling as a church, as a whole. Uh, we struggle and we battle to live uh, not only according to Christ's teachings, but even to live according to this recommendation and instruction from psychology today. We would, we would struggle. And the reason is given in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And I just want to pull out slaves to various passions and pleasures. That means we are confined, we are chained to living according to passions and desires that stir up within us. The word is lusts. Strong desires that we feel pulled towards, and we have, a, we have a sense, we have a physical sense that if I can fulfill these desires, whether it's for security or pleasure or um, whatever, if we fulfill those desires, there's a belief that's coming that says to us, you will be happy and fulfilled. And it says, passing our days in malice and envy. It's actually stronger than that. The idea of passing our days in malice and envy is not, I mean, that sounds kind of easygoing and we're, just, you know, we're kind of passing our days. Literally, the idea is that we are being directed by malice and envy. Now, malice is the desire to hurt somebody. It is the desire to destroy somebody. I got an email this week. George, I hate you. You are going to regret what you have done to me, and I am going to destroy you. Making all kinds of accusations. And the reason we get malicious towards others is because somebody stands in the way of what our passions and desires are because we, we are so enslaved to them that if somebody stands in the way, we want to destroy them. So we are led by this anger and this desire to destroy, and we are also directed and led by envy, the desire to have what we don't have, the desire to possess what others possess, regardless of our need. We see it, we want it, again, passions and desires, and envy is this, is this controlling power, hated by others and hating one another. Why? Again, we see things that we want that others have, so there is envy and that generates hatred. We, people are standing in the way of our passions and desires and we become malicious and we have people that are against us as well because of all of this, this competition and these unmet needs. And yet we're all yearning for this happiness. At the beginning of the book, Paul says that he is a servant of God. He is a servant of God. He's called by God. And he has a, there, that, that God has promised um, this eternal life. And that he works for the sake of the people of God, those that God has already called and those that God is going to call in the future. He, he is devoted to, to the people of God in the hope of eternal life, his own eternal life. Eternal life is this idea of full life, okay? It's got to, obviously because it uses the word eternal, 
It's got a temporal sense in terms of future, but it also has a full sense in terms of now. So it's an e- the capability of experiencing eternity at this moment. That's what eternal life means. That's how Jesus used it. Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life abundant. And so this idea of an abundant, full experience of life, what the world calls happiness, and what we would call happiness, is what the Bible calls eternal life. And we are driven by, we should be driven by a hope in eternal life. It's what drove, that's what drove Paul. And I would say we are all driven by a sense of some version of eternal life. It's just that prior to coming to know Jesus Christ and prior to having our deceptions and lies destroyed, we, are, we believe that eternal life is going to come through the fulfilling of these passions and desires that are ultimately self-serving. But God has called us as a church to something fundamentally different, to something that the world knows to be true but cannot fulfill. Something that the world knows to be true but cannot fulfill. Even with all of our learning and understanding and education, we cannot live according to a vision of life that we know would be better for us collectively. And so Paul gives instruction regarding our behavior in the world. And as Mike read, there are, there are six things that pop up, actually seven. Um, again, this is coming from the standpoint of, if you think of Titus as a progression, solid leadership, preaching and teaching sound doctrine, protecting the church from false teaching, establishing families and community life so that there is a, a strength and a prosperity to the church. And then in that place of strength, In that place of strength, we have the ability to engage the world in a fundamentally different way. He says to be submissive and obedient to rulers and authorities. He says to be ready for every good work. And so those who are in authority over us and all of the various spheres that we're in, follow them, obey them. Be ready for every good work. Have an alertness about your life that is ready to do good in the spheres that you're in. He doesn't get very specific as to what that would be. Okay, but all of us are in a whole variety of different spheres. All right? And there are going to be all different kinds of good works that we are, that we are given opportunities to do. Two weeks ago, this is a small one, two weeks ago, a friend of mine, he and uh, our neighbor, our former neighbors, they, they bought a house in Minneapolis. Uh, not our neighbors anymore, but we've grown to, to, to love and appreciate them. And um, they knew I was a little bit handy. And so they just asked me to come and install some light fixtures in their home. And I said, absolutely, when, when can we do it? You know, it's a small little thing. A small little thing. But... Some things like that that just pop up. And so we have good works in our jobs. We have good works in our neighborhoods. We have good works in all of the various capacities that we're in. We need to be ready, ready to serve, ready to love. He says to speak evil of no one. I think this is probably the hardest one for us to follow. Do not speak evil of anyone. Not even in the privacy of your own homes. Because it leads to 
It, it doesn't lead to building up or strengthening those who hear, Paul argues in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Quit getting into fights. We're going to come back to these a little bit. He says to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy to all people. Show perfect courtesy, kindness, be considerate to all people, regardless of who they are. We step forward with a, with a, a first step of courtesy and gentleness and kindness and consideration of who they are. And so that's just two verses of instructions there at the beginning of this passage in terms of how we are to live in the world. How we are to live in the world. And then he gives the reason for this. The reason we are to treat people in the world with utter kindness and gentleness and patience and obedience and submissiveness is because we were once like them. See, if we view the people of the world as always against us, our employers are always against us, the government is always against us, you just go down the list. If we, be, if we view the people of the world as fundamentally different from us and always against us, then we are going to be hostile toward them. We're going to think of them as enemies. And what we're doing is we're forgetting that we were once like them. We were foolish, which means to approach life without any sort of reasoning or thinking. You're just following your emotional impulses, sensual experiences. We were once like that. We were once disobedient. We rejected our parents' parents' authority. We rejected the authority of our employers. We've rejected the authorities of our government. We've rejected the authorities that exist in our lives. We were led astray. We were slaves to passions and pleasures. We were following what our flesh longed for to be entertained. We were guided and directed by malicious desires to overcome and destroy people. We were driven by the desire to possess things that we don't have. We were hated by others and we hated other people. We were. We were. Yeah. (laughs) We were. And so when we come to know Jesus Christ, if we come to a place of knowing Jesus Christ and we all of a sudden hold this arrogant posture over the world as that they are opposed to us, they are against, and, and in some ways, obviously, they are. They are opposed to the gospel. They are opposed to Jesus Christ. And we need to recognize that, that the opposition that we receive as people is opposition against Jesus Christ. Okay, And Jesus Christ came not as a military conqueror. He will. But he came first in mercy and in grace, in humility, in consideration, in gentleness, in kindness, so that the first step that he made into the world that was opposed to him was one that would consider grace and kindness and perhaps be transformed by that grace and kindness. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is the, there's a, there's, I I can't remember this psalm, I was memorizing it for a little bit, but he says, it's David at the, at the end of his life. He says, the gentleness of God made him great. It is a beautiful idea. And, and, and 
and I've just started thinking about it in terms of what it means to be a dad. You know, a, a dad, a dad who, you know, a dad holds high standards for his children. And he has a calling for his children. And he's going to in, instruct and discipline his children. But he can, he can either do that with harshness or he can do that with, with gentleness. And David said that the, the gentleness of God is what made him great. Now, God was pretty firm with David at several times in his life. But overall, David looked upon his life and saw that the gentleness of God made him great because it is, it is gentleness that, that appeals to people. It is kindness that appeals to people. And our, and our anger and our maliciousness, maliciousness and our harshness uh, is not coming from God. It is coming from some frustration and anger that is emerging from within us because the person that we are angry at is somehow standing in the way of, of our passions and pleasures being fulfilled. And that anger is just the beginning seed of what Jesus said is murder, maliciousness. And so our first step towards the world, towards each other, <laughs> towards each other, because he's saying all people, but it's really in the sphere of the world, is, is one of gentleness and kindness because it, it's, it's that grace that gives people the opportunity to repent. Jesus will come back as a conquering king, but we have a long season where he has given us the gospel and he has called the world to repentance. And we, as his people, we as his people, are called to be the, the voice and image of Jesus in this world. And this is how the world should know us. This is how the world should know us. I don't think it knows us this way. And so we've got a, we've got a battle in our own culture <clears throat> of representing Jesus as he would want to be represented. And it's going to be characterized by, by the giving of ourselves, by generous living. And he says, when the, when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. So when, when we came face to face with the kindness and gentleness of God, we were saved. And the idea there is that when, when we, because it was over you know, 2,000 years ago when Jesus came and died and resurrected from the dead. But it, it, it's when, when our eyes first realized, when our eyes first, when our eyes first saw, when our ears first heard and understood, when, when our minds and our hearts were first opened and exposed and enlightened to the goodness and kindness of God, that, that's when we were saved. When we saw ourselves and the brokenness of our lives being directed by passions and pleasures and malice and envy, when we saw the goodness and kindness of God, even though we deserved death, when those things became apparent to us, God saved us. And he said, it is not by our works. We made no effort at all to come to a place of being saved, saved from being directed by envy and pleasures and malice. God saved us. God saved us according to his mercy. And then he says this, we have been washed, we have been regenerated. So washed means we've been cleansed. So in our consciences, 
and in our bodies, in our minds, and in every aspect of who we are, we have sinned in ways that we are deeply ashamed of. One of the most powerful things for me personally that the gospel has done is that it has just washed away the shame of my sin. It took years to really meditate on that long enough to where no longer did my shame have control over me. We have been washed, so all of the sins and the evil deeds that we have committed, the guilt and the shame of those have been washed away. We have been regenerated, which means we have been made new. We have been made new. We're not the old person that we used to be. We don't have those sins anymore and the guilt and shame of those sins hanging over our heads, regardless of what you've done. And this really needs to be clear. We We all come to Christ with a whole battery and history of sins, some of which are extremely, extremely shameful. But if we're true to ourselves and true to our consciences, even even the smallest of sins that we commit against one another, driven by these seeds of malice and envy, and if we're we're looking into ourselves accurately, we sense these, these motivations that come out in these, maybe just a hurtful statement. We know the extreme of that evil that is present within us that seeks to desire, that desires to destroy people that come against us. So it may be externally extremely shameful, like if people found out it just would, you'd completely crumble. Or it could be something small but has on the inside the same extreme amount of evil that these big external sins, we see these things separately, but they're all at the core, this, this evil root. That's been washed away and we've been made new. We've been made new. You are not your sin anymore if you've come to know Jesus Christ. If you haven't come to know Jesus Christ and there's something hanging over you in terms of you feel like you don't deserve it, I've had a lot of conversations with people over the years. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to the point where I can come to God and feel good about myself because they, they view God as expecting them to rise to a certain level. God is not expecting us to rise to a certain level. He sent Jesus in the world because we couldn't rise to a certain level. God is not asking you to rise to a certain level. He's asking you to recognize that, that you've been corrupted by your own sin. And you need to be saved from that. You, you can't, you, 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 have a, you have an inside, you have a heart that's evil. You need to be washed and then you need to be regenerated and be made new. And that's what's happened to you if you've come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Christ has washed away your sin, and he has made you someone new. So if you're wanting that new life, if you're wanting to say, you know what, I just wish I could put all of my past behind me and start new. How many, how many of us have said that? Even as believers, we live 20 or 30 years as Christians, and we see ourselves now, and we're like, you know what, I'm, I'm at a place where I never thought I would be as a believer. I can't believe the things of the last 5, 10, 20 years. I just wish I could start new. Well, that that request has been met. That's exactly what Jesus did. And even as Christians, if if we've been a Christian for a long time, and we look back, and, and we still think, okay, 
when I became a Christian, my life should have changed 100%. I should have been perfect from the point I became a Christian, but I'm not perfect. I, I'm still embarrassed by my, by my works and by my deeds as a Christian. That's not the gospel. He washed you, he made you new, and is in this process of bringing that to reality. But you're always in this place of being washed and be made new and being regenerated. You're always new. You're always washed. It's this constant cleansing. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room? You've been bathed. You don't need to be bathed again. You just need to have your feet washed. And so we live this life of confession and repentance, which is constantly bringing to bear in our experience the fact that we've been bathed and cleansed once for all. And so we're not to be burdened by our own sin and the challenges that we face still. We've been justified by his grace. We've been made right and whole. And there's this point that he brings up that I think has a very critical element to our, to our grasping of our mission in this world. He says we have been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We've been made heirs. He brings in this idea that we are inheriting something. The promise is for us to experience eternal life, a quality of life with Christ that is characteristic of his kingdom. And so this, this term heir is a kingdom idea. And that we are new citizens. We are heirs. Heirs means we are going to inherit and receive something from God. And I think this is cruel because then it, the world is no longer something that is the means for our fulfilling of our passions and our desires. Okay, so we've been clean, we've been cleansed, we've been washed, we've re been regenerated. Um, so what does that mean in relationship to our desires? What does that mean in relationship to our, to our anger and our envy and our malice? If we believe that we are heirs of the kingdom of God, then we already possess everything. Amen. We don't need to possess anything else to make us happy because we have possessed everything as heirs of the kingdom of God. And there is nothing that the world can provide us that is going to be greater than the inheritance that we've already received. And it is a, an illusion it is an illusion that the, that the more things that we can accumulate to make us happy, which is the, from the lust of our eyes and the lust of our flesh, if we believe these things are going to make us happy, is that it is an illusion because we already possess something of, of much greater and eternal worth. We are heirs of the kingdom of God and citizens of this world, citizens of that kingdom. It is our world it is Christ's world. You know, the, the scriptures teach, you've, if you've been in the house churches long enough, you've been asked to memorize chapter 1 of Colossians and chapter 1 of Ephesians. And we know that Christ sits in authority over all things in heaven and on earth, and that we are seated with him at the right hand of his kingdom, and that we are full inheritors of that kingdom. And so the world is no longer something to possess because we, in, in truth, it's already ours. 
It's no longer the means to our fulfillment. It is now something that we are required to steward. It is now something that we are required to, to take care of. Just like man and woman were called in the garden, take care of this garden. And the first thing you've got to do in the caring for this garden is to watch out for that snake. And don't eat that fruit from that tree. And we failed in the stewarding of the world that God had given us. So now we have a second opportunity in Christ. Part of eternal life, part of eternal life, I would say it's, it's, it's all, all of these things are integrated. Our health as a church family, our leadership strength, our ability to understand and know and, and to teach and live and to protect sound doctrine. The health in our families, in our marriages, in our community, our mission to the world, all of these are wrapped up in this concept of godliness, which is in accordance to eternal life. But if we, if we do not adequately consider what it means that in eternal life we have now become stewards of the kingdom of God, we will not, we will not experience the fulfillment of what that means. And we will not experience even the happiness that is described as something possible in the world to experience following the instructions from this psychologist. It's good words. But we will not fulfillment, fulfill it if we, if we don't grab hold of this idea that we are heirs. Heirs of the kingdom of God. Heirs of eternal life and called to life in this world. Devoted to good works. Paul will use the term in the next passage we look at next week. Devoted to the meeting of pressing needs. That's the outcome. Verse 8. I want the people of God to be devoted to good works. Not to lives of fulfilling desires, passions, envy, malice. I want them to live, to live lives devoted to good works as heirs of the kingdom of God, as people who recognize that it is their kingdom and that they possess all things. There's nothing else that will make them happy or fulfilled or give them eternal life. He says, the people of God devoted to good works is excellent. The works in and of themselves are excellent. The things that we do to contribute to the stewarding of this world and to the benefit of the lives of the people of this world is an excellent thing. The work that we do is excellent because it is a work stewarding the kingdom of God. And he says it is profitable for all people, not just profitable for the church, not just profitable for us as individual Christians or our families. It is profitable for all people. Our works are to be profitable for all people. And then at the last couple of verses, he gives us warnings. Don't be distracted by these things. And there are two things that distract. They're kind of wrapped up in the one. The first thing do not get caught up in irrelevant theological debates. Don't get caught up in irrelevant theological debates. Okay, so we looked at last week this issue of, of, of gender. And every age in the church has always had its, its cultural issues and challenges from a theological truth perspective. We have to teach 
and protect the truth. We do. Okay, so to some degree, argument and debate is needed. But that's not our mission. Paul will say later, warn the divisive person who's coming in with these, which is the second distraction, a divisive people. Divisive people come in with false teachings or just not necessarily even false teachings, just unhealthy teachings, teachings that don't go anywhere, teachings that exist purely for the sake of debate and argument, but don't produce any sort of health in our lives. So we are to, to, to teach and preach sound doctrine. We are to protect the church from false teaching. And he says this, listen, give them a warning. And if they keep it up in their divisiveness and their false teaching, give them a second warning. After that, have nothing, left to, have nothing more to do with them. So the, the people of the church are to be hearing and living sound doctrine. And if some things are coming in that are contrary to the teachings of Jesus Christ and are upsetting us as people, we as a church are responsible to preach and and speak the truth in love, and and the elders are responsible to confront. Hey, what you're teaching is wrong. You're dividing the church. It doesn't lead to healthy living. It doesn't lead to excellent and profitable good works in the world. It's just theological argument. You trying to make a point because you're trying to make a name for yourself. That's where false teaching comes from. Envy, fulfillment of desires and passions is where false teaching and distracting foolish ideas come from. Somebody is trying to prop themselves up. Elders come, uh, what you're teaching is wrong, it's distracting to the mission of the church, you're confusing people, you're upsetting whole families, this is warning number one. If it continues, hey, You're teaching false teachings. You're upsetting whole families. It's confusing. It's not leading to any sort of profitable or excellent works. This is warning number two. If they keep it up, hey, church, avoid this person. And we stay focused on the the teachings of the gospel that remind us and strengthen us in the fact that we are cleansed for good works in the stewardship of God's kingdom. That's, That's what life is supposed to be like. We can get wrapped up. Even if we are on the side of, quote, truth, If we give our lives to these debates, which has happened over the course of the church in all 2,000 years, if we give our lives to these debates, we will be off mission, regardless of the position that you're on. We are not here for theological debate. We are here to live lives that reflect the cleansing that Christ has brought us in stewardship of this world for good works that are excellent and profitable for all. That's our mission. The teachings of the Bible bring us the gospel and instruction so that we can live lives that way. And so we have a lifestyle. So we have, a, we have some general things that are to be true. We have a lifestyle to live in all of our spheres. Submissive, obedient to rulers and authorities. Don't view them as holding you back. Start serving them. Ready for every good work. Quit looking to be served. Look to see where you can serve. Speak evil of no one. We speak evil of others to lift up ourselves because of our passions and desires to elevate ourselves. We're going to feel good if we're in places of power and places of security and places of prominence. So I'm going to cut down other people. 
You are a child and servant of God. You have inherited the kingdom of God. You don't need to build yourself up any further. You're seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. Avoid quarreling. Quarreling comes from selfish ambition. Hey, here's something I think that I can prove my point on and establish my superiority over the other person and over the other argument. That's what quarreling is. I, again, we have, to, we have to engage in debate and argument over the truth, but it shouldn't be there very long. And then we'll say, you know, you've been warned. You've been warned again. Now we're going to have nothing to do with you because we're on mission. We're on mission. We are to be gentle. We are to show perfect courtesy. So these are things that we're all called to do. So again, the, the good works that pop up all right, so we have our house churches that Lawrence described earlier. And we engage in collective efforts as house churches to engage in good works that pop up as needed. Pressing needs, good works, they're all kind of lumped into the same category here in the book of Titus. And so I'm always hearing, I'm either observing in the two house churches that I'm a part of, so I'm observing good works taking place, needs being addressed that pop up from small to huge. Across the church, we are meeting the needs that pop up. Sometimes they're within the church community, sometimes they're outside of the church community, but they come up within our house churches. But I think that we've been called to a few special things as a church. I'm going to take some time this week, so I'm going to take some time next week. And, and so let me, we have four more weeks, including this one in the book of Titus. So we're looking here today at good works in the world. Next week, we're going to look at good works in the context of a, of a network and movement of churches. And then the last two weeks, we're going to look at what it means to be a member of the Twin Cities Church family. We've talked about this for a long time. Okay? We're going to talk about what it means to be a member of Twin Cities Church, the family of God here at, in, at Twin Cities Church, and we're going to talk about our membership covenant. Okay? It's not going to be a traditional membership process that, that you probably have experienced if you've been a member of another church. It's a covenant, and it's a covenant that's, that's, that explains here's who we believe we are as the people of God at Twin Cities Church. Here's what the leadership is covenanting, and here's what we as the people of God are covenanting. Um, no requirements or anything. Like that. I mean, there's like from the word of God, there are expectations, but it doesn't mean you're going to vote and all these things. But we'll explain more of it as we go. And we're going to tie in as we go through these last four messages. Um, what is it that we believe God is calling us to in mission? And these things that are external of us. The last few sermons have been about us. The, these, this sermon and the next few are going to be, what does it mean to serve those around us? And so all of you know, I think if you've been around for a while, about our, our work with Twin Cities Ministries. And so Twin Cities Ministries is, a, is an organization that was started by us, the New Life Church of Woodbury, um, to, to create a partnership entity for collaborative efforts in the Twin Cities between other churches. And the first big project that we had was our, our work um, in, in the jails and in treatment organizations and in transition homes. And we've spent some time explaining those things. So the organization has been around for about a little over six years. 
And we've come to the point where we've got substantive work in the jails, we've got, with Seth's directing of Metro Hope, we've got substantive work going on in, in the treatment centers. We've, we've, we've got a discipleship home that we've owned for over two, three years now um, with, with men that have successfully gone through that program. And we've kind of reached a place where, okay, we've done it, but it can't, it, it has to grow. It needs to grow. And so we hired, um, we hired a consultant. He's a, a specialist in nonprofit organization and management and fundraising. And uh, he himself is an executive director of a large uh, well drilling company in the Central Africa Republic called Water for Good. The mission of Water for Good is to make sure that the people of Central African Republic have uh, clean water, for lifetimes in their villages. So he's been director of this organization for a number of years. He was brought in there by the board and has <clears throat> really done a great job. And in his experience and in his schooling and education, he does a lot of consulting for other, for other nonprofit organizations. And so he, we brought him in this week, Monday through Wednesday. And we just, you know, Seth was there and Tim was there and, and Gina Evans, Seth's wife, was there. And uh, I was there and we just hashing out who are we what are we doing where have we come from what is our vision what is our calling what do we do to take it to the next step and we came up with just a number of things that we've got to really do and and it, it you know we talk about it a, a lot um the work of twin cities ministries is really going after the whole a whole collage of pressing needs in this world, that for those of us who recognize that we are citizens of the kingdom of God and stewards of this world should really cause us to stop and ask ourselves, what can we do? Whether it's the breakdown of the family, substance abuse, crime, race, injustice, economic disparity, poverty and homelessness, social and economic effects of these things from a financial and emotional. All of these things, you guys, are tied up in this, in this effort that we are engaged in. I don't have the time to get into all the different statistics, but you've heard them before. There's a great deal of need here that is decimating our world in every possible way. Individuals, families, communities, financial, every possible way the need is so great. And you know what? There have been government programs trying to solve these problems for over a century. Over a century. The solution is the church. It's the people of God. Tim Keller says, only the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ and the millions of many churches, Christian families throughout the country, can attack the roots of social problems. Only the church can minister to the whole person. Robert Bella, not a believer, former scholar, he's dead now, at, from University of California, Berkeley. When we consider how to renew the cultural capacity for community and solidarity in each of the three classes to which our society is divided. So he's, he's looking at race and classism and economic disparities and all these things. This book is like in its fourth edition. He says, if we're going to really look at solving all of the problems that exist 
as a community, as, a, as an American community. It would be well to remember something we have already mentioned, that in American religion, that in American society, religious associations have the strongest hold on their members and almost alone have the capacity to reach individuals in every class. Essentially what he's saying is this, We've been trying to solve these problems for decades. And this guy that we hired, is, he wrote a PhD looking at the history of, of government organizations trying to solve social problems. And the society has to make an effort, okay? But these problems still exist. And the problems are getting worse. And what doesn't exist is a unified, solid, growing network of churches trying to solve these problems. Our vision for Twin Cities Ministries, particularly in this sphere, is to see churches coming together to address all of these things. And it's, it's got to be a lot of churches because the need is so great. 700,000 people a year are released from state and federal institutions Two-thirds of them will go back within five years. And the, the, the substance abuse, the crime, the family breakdown, the mental health issues, everything like that, everything just keeps growing. And our jails are for-profit institutions that profit off of social ills. They're not working to help. They are making the problems worse. So the church has got to step in and address the whole person. We need to hire an executive director. Because like... I, I don't, I, I've been volunteering for Twin Cities Ministry since we started it, and I don't have the capacity to serve and lead the organization. We need to essentially double our budget at Twin Cities Ministries. We need to get another house. We need to form partnerships with more churches and other organizations. All of these things we've done a little bit of, but it's like, okay, are, are we going to go to the next level? Are we going to go to the next level? We've got to get more focused and serious in our fundraising. And so it's, a good, it's an opportunity for good works at every level. And I'm just kind of giving this heads up. Okay? We'll talk about it in more detail as time goes on over the next couple of months. But Twin Cities Church, this is something that God has called us to. And it meets pressing needs in this, in this world that we have inherited as the kingdom of God. And so many of you have been very, very generous Okay, and we've got to get more churches, get more generous, and we're going to, again, call us to this need. And the challenges are going to be the same. The challenges are going to be the same. Envy, passions, pleasures, distractions. But we who have our hope in eternal life, our hope in Jesus Christ, our hope in the kingdom of God, and not in the kingdom of this world, we who have been washed and renewed and regenerated can experience a fullness that this world can never experience. And we can see the lives of people changed, as we've seen already. But our desire across the board, Twin Cities Ministries, and all of the various needs, is to, is to have an effect on this world. Some people will come to know Jesus Christ. Evangelism is hard in our culture right now. And we need to step forward if we, I'm convinced that if we step forward with a sustained community-based effort in all of these things, people will see and say, you know what, there's something different about those people. There's something different about the people of God. They're engaged in these good works. They're changing the lives of people. And that is our witness. That is our witness. Let me pray. Lord God, um, 
What a massive calling you have given to us with massive needs. But we are exceedingly encouraged by the fact that we have been washed of sin that holds us back and the shame that would keep us down. And we have been renewed and regenerated into people who are zealous for good works and who understand that life is not found in what we can accumulate, but it is found in what has already been given to us. And as we give to others, we will find that joy increasingly. In your son's name, amen.